Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, October 17th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz from the New York Times. Good morning. Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. And Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So Congress is back from its fall break. We didn't have fall breaks when I was a kid, but they do now. Uh, And as we speak, three separate House committees are working to amend and vote on Speaker Nancy Pelosi's prescription drug bill, which the Congressional Budget Office last week estimated would save $345 billion by 2029. That is a lot of money. Uh, First, someone remind us how this proposal would go about trying to reduce drug prices. Well, it allows for a limited number of drugs, and the number keeps changing. I believe the current number is 35 high-priced drugs. It would be over time. But phased in over over like a decade, right? It would allow those prices to be negotiated, and it would be paid pegged to international prices the way uh, President Trump has also suggested. The number 25 or 35 is a lot less than the progressive wing wanted, and it is more, it is sort of a starker way of tackling prices than many of the moderates wanted. So Pelosi's been trying to, I think the progressives had wanted 250 drugs or something like that. Well, it's a maximum of 250. Right. And this is just for Medicare, right? Right. This is a Medicare, and then they, they... this, these are high, these are particularly expensive drugs widely used in Medicare, and then they have some mechanisms that they hope it will spill over into the rest of the market. Mm-hmm. But it is very in flux. Um, the politics that we thought couldn't get any more toxic have gotten more toxic. Um, as we um, speak today, and this could change, you know, the, the, an unrelated meeting at the White House between uh, Speaker Pelosi and, and President Trump did not go well. There's uh, morning after name calling and um, the idea of getting an ambitious drug package through by the end of the year, even on something where there is agreement between the White House and the House Democrats, does not seem highly likely, particularly as the Senate is not on the same page. Well, yeah. You, you, oh, go ahead. I was going to say one other point that the CBO made, which is what the Republicans are jumping on, is the fact that it could lead to up to fewer 15 drugs uh, coming to market over 10 years. And so the Republicans are now jumping on that this would stifle innovation and would cause people to, well, I'm not sure. Die. If actually, <laughs> did they actually say it would cause people no, to die? No, but that's, but the, yeah, that's, exactly. the, that's right. the implication. That's what they're trying to say. The that's drug right. industry is saying. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's the, of the Faster CBO Faster than they report. would otherwise, right. Right. So the Democrats <laughs> are saying, look, it'll save money. And the Republicans are saying, look, it'll mean less innovation. I think this trade-off exists in any bill that's going to effectively lower drug prices. If you lower the profitability of bringing a drug to market, then you somewhat lower the incentives for investors of various sorts to put their money into the development of new medical technologies. But, you know, there's there's some back and forth, and it depends, you know, the if you're squashing uh, profitability by a lot, then you may be stifling innovation by more than if you're just squashing it by a little. And I do think one thing that's interesting about this bill is we've been using, and I think the authors of this bill have been using the term negotiation to describe what it does. It's a pretty 
it's a there's a bit of a hammer with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. I think it's not what we think of as negotiation, where the two parties come to the table and they haggle back and forth, and maybe one of them Over walks away if they can't make a deal. <laughs> Essentially, what this bill says is, you know, for the drugs that are in this category. There is going to be an international benchmark that's going to establish the maximum price for this drug. If the drug company does not lower the price to that, then they start getting whacked with big penalties on their past sales. So it's a very aggressive... Up to like 90 or 95 percent over a couple of quarters. It goes up to huge, a huge surcharge. Right. And then there's one other thing in the bill that I feel like I'm not going to be able to talk about all of the fine print, but that I wanted to raise, which is it also includes some reforms to the design of the Medicare Part D drug mm-hmm. benefit, uh, which, you know, this is a program that's been around since the early 2000s. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's some weirdnesses in the way that it's designed. And a lot of economists uh, sort of both on the right and the left and a lot of lawmakers think that there are some perverse incentives in the design of this program. And that is actually something where there is bipartisan agreement, both in the House and the Senate, that the Medicare Part D benefit should be redesigned somewhat to try to make it work a little bit better and to reduce some financial exposure for individual seniors. But making those changes costs money. And so it seems like the success of those Part D reforms is going to depend on some kind of drug price lowering thing also passing so they can be packaged together. So even though that is a piece of policy where I think there is a lot of agreement, it all kind of hinges on whether there can be consensus on the more controversial part about actually lowering drug prices. Well, like so many things in Medicare, the Part D um, actual benefit was designed, A, to fit under a certain financial target and B, to help the people who most needed it, but also to help people broadly. That's where we ended up with this donut hole that they thought, well, if, if it's only for people who have the highest drug costs, then nobody else is going to want to pay for it. So they said, we're going to have an, sort of an introductory benefit. So I think at the beginning, it was the first $2,000 of drugs got covered. And then if you got up to a catastrophic threshold, 95% of your costs got covered, but everybody was in the middle and that came to be known as the donut hole. And that was done for sort of purely political reasons, not because it made any sense as a an actual insurance benefit. Right. Um, and one thing that is getting more bipartisan support is in several bills, including Pelosi's, is a cap in the out-of-pocket spending because we don't have that in Medicare Part D. And that's a big problem that's for right, a lot be- of seniors. Because in 2003, when they passed the bill, they figured fi- but most people could afford 5% of their drug costs because we didn't have ten and $100,000 drugs in for the most part in 2003. And now they're fairly common. So 5%, even if you're, you know, can, can be an awful lot of money. And as you point out, there is no cap. Right, and they, but again, if you if you tinker with, there's a difference between saving out of pocket costs for people on Medicare and saving underlying drug costs. Who do you shift those costs to? Are you shifting it from the Medicare population to the under sixty five patient population? That if you know if you know if Grandma's drug costs costs go down, does you know Uncle Tommy's t- costs go up, or are you actually are you shifting it to the taxpayer? You know that you'll you you will keep drug prices down in terms of what we pay at the drugstore, but you know Medicare and Medicaid ends up paying more, or you actually bring down drug prices, and you know it all is a big TBD on you know if if you don't do something comprehensive, 
then you're shifting prices instead of bringing prices down. And which do, it matters to individuals. I mean, if you're, you know, people dealing with high-priced cancer drugs or people dealing with insulin or whatever, I mean, it's not that it doesn't matter, and I don't want to imply that it doesn't matter, but it's they're two different problems, and we're not necessarily solving both of them. And if we don't solve both of them, we're still paying somehow. That's and true. that's what the advocates are saying and the insurers are saying, is that a lot of these reforms that are, you know, being batted about in Congress and in the administration are not actually lowering the list price. But how do you lower list prices? You you know, set a drug price, it's, as you would say, negotiation. But Which you basically, is, as Margo said, that's right. kind you, of what you, they're doing, although only for these drugs. Right, right. for a limited and, number and of drugs. And the U.S. is not going to accept, generally, drug price setting. All right, well, there's one more piece of this that, and I, that I feel like has not gotten enough attention, which is that the Energy and Commerce Committee, in addition to working on the drug bill, also... Uh, plans to consider some rather expensive benefit additions to Medicare, specifically coverage for dental care, vision care, and hearing care. I'm assuming this is kind of a campaign stunt to put more pressure on the Senate, which we will talk about in a second. But could it be the start of actually adding some of these benefits to Medicare? I mean, Medicare was is still in many ways a 1965 uh, insurance package. And these are benefits that are highly used and highly prized by seniors. And one of the things that tends to drive them into Medicare Advantage programs, which tend to offer them because they know that seniors want them. Not all. I mean, I actually had to look up the Medicare Advantage dental coverage statistics a couple of you know, months or so ago. And of course, I can't remember it exactly anymore. But I think it was like, I think it was like one out of three Medicare Advantage plans oh, yeah, covered dental. Right. They so, don't all cover uh, yeah, them, I mean, but... it's. Just, I mean, I think that, yes, it's a campaign year. But I mean, I think people think that these are medical needs, you know, vision as you grow older, hearing as you grow older, teeth as you grow older. Um, you know, they are... I think particularly oral health care is something that we used to think about as a cosmetic thing, and we actually understand it's a health it's a health issue. But it costs a lot of money, and I you know I I, I think that when they start getting talked about a lot more, you know, down the road something happens, but we aren't down the road. And how much did, is this also just designed to to put pressure on the Senate, which, as somebody mentioned, is not quite in the same place as the House on drug prices? Although they do have their own bill, which we they have are a bipartisan bill. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's interesting also that this is coming up at a time when, of course. Bernie Sanders and everyone is saying, oh, well, look at Medicare for all. We're going to cover everything. So for free. The, right. Yeah, and you hear so, some some Democrats who've been at this for a long time saying, well, maybe before we do Medicare for all, we ought to make the Medicare benefit itself better and stronger. And there is sort of a laundry list of changes to Medicare that I think kind of wonky Democrats want to do, which include you know, putting an out-of-pocket cap on Medicare Part D, which is what we were just talking about in the drug bill, also include perhaps an out-of-pocket cap in the other parts of Medicare. Which we had for five minutes in the late <laughs> 1980s, and it got repealed. Another but then story. it's also this kind of benefit <laughs> expansion. You know, the Sanders bill for Medicare for all would include all of these benefits, of course, for everyone. I think there are other Democrats who think, well, let's at least do them in the current Medicare population because they are important health needs for these people who are getting this benefit. I was just, I was surprised to see this. I mean, I know one of the reasons they're doing it is because suddenly they have $345 billion. Thank you very much, <laughs> Congressional Budget Office. But I don't know. Of the th- of the th- when it's I a lot of teeth that, cleaning. It's a lot of teeth cleaning. <laughs> Dental care is very expensive. It's very expensive, and it's very expensive for older people, I know. Right. My, well, especially my mom now spent it's, my inheritance on my, her teeth. Exactly. It's, it's interesting, too. I was talking with a dental researcher about this a few years ago, that it actually used to be before we had fluoridated water and we had really good oral hygiene and preventive dental care, that most people, by the time they reached Medicare age, they didn't have teeth anymore. And 
now we're seeing people living into old age with many more teeth, which is overall really good for their health and good for lots of other reasons. But it does mean that they need more dental care in old age, whereas before a lot of people were in full dentures by the time they got to old age. They didn't really need Well, they didn't live that long, period. I mean, life expectancy was like 67. But but it's true. If they did, they didn't have their teeth. That is a really good point. Yes. Hence, back to my, it was a 1965 benefit package. All right. Well, let's talk about the debate and health care in the debate. Uh, a lot has changed since the debate last month. Most importantly, Elizabeth Warren is now considered the front runner, at least by all of the other candidates. Um, so uh, the debate started with a moderator question that Elizabeth Warren has been ducking. Specifically, would she acknowledge that her health plan, really Bernie Sanders' health plan, would raise taxes on the middle class? And here's how she answered. The way I see this, it is about what kinds of costs middle class families are going to face. So let me be clear on this. Costs will go up for the wealthy. They will go up for big corporations and for middle class families. They will go down. I will not sign a bill into law that does not lower costs for middle class families. Okay, we all know that promises can get you in trouble. Um, Sanders himself says that taxes will go up, but that middle class people will still save money because their out of pocket health costs will disappear. Including their premiums. Completely. Right. You will not have right. any health bills. You'll so, have a higher tax bill, according to Bernie Sanders, but you will have a lower medical bill. I would say, so who's, who's right? Depends well. how you define <laughs> it, it. You know, it depends on how do you define middle class. It defend, you know, the other, you know, somebody who is really healthy and who doesn't have to pay their deductible and who doesn't have auto pocket costs. Um, and who has low premiums. And who has, you know, relatively low premiums, depending on, you know, where they live and et cetera. Um, it's hard to, unless you know exactly what the tax rate is going to be, is that person going to have higher or lower costs? You don't know. Somebody who is middle class and who's paying a ton of money because they're chronic conditions in the family and they're paying money every month, they may see their prices, their, their costs come down. But it's really hard to evaluate because we don't know anything about in any it's too soon to know how they're going to define middle class what the tax rate is going to be you know what rates are they going to pay providers this is a, you know there's a even in the the most well-intentioned you know Bernie Sanders truly believes this is a savings and this is a good thing i mean there's no question that he truly believes that but until you sit you know you lock a lot of actuaries in a room for a month and a half you know and feed them you don't really know what it's going to look like but i think it's we're even further from being able to answer the question than not just having the actuaries have done the work in both the case of Sanders and especially of Warren, they have not released detailed enough financing plans for anyone to even begin to take a crack at making these kinds of estimates. So if you think about these two factors, right, like your health care costs are going to go down because you don't have to pay premiums, you don't have to pay co-payments or deductibles, maybe your taxes are going to go up because you're going to pay new taxes to help finance the system. They have done a pretty good job of specifying what's going to happen on the health cost side. And a lot of economists have done, you know, as well as they can and try and estimate what's the total cost of this whole system reform. But they have not been nearly specific enough about what are the precise taxes that are going to be raised and by how much. Sanders, more so than Warren, has acknowledged that there's going to be some tax burden um, sort of across the income spectrum. He said that he would uh, finance Medicare for all, at least in part, with a payroll tax. So that's a tax that hits people's pay and that hits basically everyone's pay. But he hasn't said what the rate will be. The rates that he well, specified he in 2016. In 2019, he came out with some financing options. Yeah, he came out with like a memo. It would yeah. be 4% on uh, employees and exempting the first 29000 
So he has some amount. But also, I mean, one of the issues is we don't know how much he's going to pay the providers. And so, yes, we have some estimates on how much it'll cost. And the Sanders campaign, uh, you know, the Urban Institute yesterday came out with a report saying that it would cost roughly $34 uh, trillion over 10 years. And the Sanders campaign came out saying, well, that Urban Institute estimated that we were going to pay Medicare, uh, we were going to pay the doctors or the hospitals actually 115%. We never said we were going to do that. But it's like you've never said what you're going to do at all. So how much it's going to cost and how much taxes are going to have to be raised. And the hospitals are, are busy depend. saying if we had to take Medicare, today's Medicare rates for everybody, yeah, yeah, yeah we say. go broke. Right, right. Yeah, that's and what they some, say. some will. I yeah, mean, right. so, there will be some that are going to be in trouble. But interestingly, one of my colleagues at CNN who's covering the Warren campaign said that uh, yesterday reported, we reported that uh, Warren is looking at financing options that she will be rolling out at some point. So at some point, wait for I, that. I do think it's going to be hard for Warren. So Warren has already proposed a number of taxes on the higher end of the income scale and for corporations. For, to pay for other things. To pay for mm-hmm. other things. So she's proposed a wealth tax. She's proposed corporate profits tax. She's proposed increasing the Social Security payroll tax up to higher levels of income. She's a lot of taxes that are really hitting. She wants to raise income tax rates for high income people. So she's got a lot of taxes on the top that are consistent with her promise, right? Rich people are going to pay more. Poor people are going to have lower cost. But when you think about the, you know, 30-odd trillion dollars over 10 years, it's going to cost to expand the Medicare benefit to cover everyone and to cover all the services that she's identified. It's a little bit hard to imagine how they're going to squeeze that much more money just out of rich people and corporations. I mean, she's already hitting them for a lot. So it'll be really interesting to see what her financing proposal looks like. Right. And they keep rolling out new social programs. I mean, now Bernie Sanders wants to eliminate all medical debt and, you know, other things. So. That one turned out to be way less expensive than I was expecting. <laughs> yes, although we defining medical debt is also another <laughs> exactly, issue. Yeah. So, no, Our, and the other thing that gets lost, and, and we've sort of alluded to that just now, but there's a lot of cost shifting. Um, you know, a hospital gets, I'm just going to use a really simple example, say they get $10,000 for, you know, a hip replacement. I'm totally making up that number. That's not what they get, but it's got a lot of zeros. It's easy. So they say they get $10,000 for Medicare for hip replacement. That hip replacement under the current for-profit system with private insurers and lots of fee-for-service in poor incentives and all that, maybe it really costs them twelve. So they're going to charge the private insurer 15000 to make up that difference or to maybe they'll charge them twelve. whatever. They'll charge what they can get away with. Um, so all this, when advocates of single payer says, well, Medicare is cheaper, Medicare costs less. It's true, but because there's all this inefficiency and cost shifting and making things up and, and shell games, so you know that isn't really addressed very fr- you know frontally when people talk about and provider. As, as we pointed out, the Washington State Public mm-hmm. Option is going to pay providers what is it 150 165 I think. I think. And yeah. initially, the interesting thing I love that example because. The interesting thing is initially when the uh, legislature there was talking about it, they wanted to pay Medicare rates and the premiums were expected to go down 40 percent. But, of course, the hospitals and doctors weren't pleased with that. So they negotiated up for a higher rate to be paid. And now the premium savings is 5 to 10 percent. So is that really so much of a saving? And when North Carolina tried to peg um, payment rates to the North Carolina Treasurer had a proposal that they would pay um, Medicare rates plus, I think it was 100. They, they went up at the scale. They, they ended up going all the way up to 200% of Medicare for public employees, which would include teachers. It's a lot of people. And the health care providers, they kept creeping up from, you know, when they hit 
double Medicare, the provider still resisted and the plan died. So, um, you know, hospitals want to be able to charge more than Medicare. All right. So we're not the only ones who've been questioning these things. The the incrementalists on the stage at the debate uh, were prepared to fight back against Warren. Um, Mayor Pete Buttigieg pointed out correctly that technically Warren doesn't even have her own health plan. Your signature, Senator, is to have a plan for everything except this. And Senator Amy Klobuchar, who most analysts thought had a pretty good night, raised the feasibility argument. The difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. So here's the big question. The public overall, if you look at polls, prefers a more incremental approach to expanding coverage and controlling costs. But the activists in the Democratic Party are for Medicare for all. And obviously, this is a primary. So that's important. Um, Is there room for Warren to, I mean, I, I can't imagine Sanders ever pivoting on this, but is there room for Warren to pivot? Is that why she doesn't have her own plan yet? I hear this argument being made by people that the reason why she's been vague about the details of her plan is because she's giving herself room to change her mind. But I actually think if you look at her public statements on health care over the last few months, she is getting more and more committed to the idea and the virtues of Medicare for all, not less so. The way that she talked about why she supports Medicare for all at the debate did not give me the impression that she's getting ready to move away from this idea. I don't know what's in her mind, and I don't know exactly what all of her advisors are telling her. So, you know, I don't want to make any predictions about where she is in the future. But I think at this point, it's reasonable to take her at her word that she thinks this is the best solution. I think the fact that she doesn't have a plan is more revealing of something different, which is the degree to which this is a policy priority for her. You imagine that if she's elected president, there are a lot of things that she's thought about and she cares about and she's talked about a lot. And it may be that the first few bills that she tries to push through Congress aren't Medicare for all. She may remain committed to the idea of it, but health care might be priority number seven that she might not even get to. She could also do some kind of two-tier thing where she can say, yes, I agree with Senator Sanders. I'm committed to Medicare for all. I don't think we can do it in four years. Here's Mm -hmm. my plan to get there in 10. In the meantime, let's go for the public option or let's go for a Medicare buy-in or let's go for a Medicaid buy-in or let's go for this, that higher subsidies, there are a million, op- you know, there's lots of variants. See, that's my theory. She could do a two-track. She and could she- say, yes, I'm really committed. I mean, her sort of, a lot of her academic work <coughs> is actually about medical debt. I mean, she's got a history on single payer. So, but she could all, and I'm just guessing, none of us know. She could say, yes, I'm committed. You know, I think I think Bernie would have tried to do it too quickly. We need to do it a little bit more slowly, but I'm going to give you other things to protect coverage and help people while we get there. The other thing we've pointed out in the past, and it's always worth pointing out again, is the so-called incremental centrists on the stage. When they're talking about Medicare buy-ins and public option, those were actually the left positions a decade ago. So the those entire, are the they couldn't get right, into they the could, ACA. They couldn't, they couldn't get them through the Senate with 60, Senate, 60 Democrats. I don't think they could get them through the Congress now, frankly. No, it would be harder. Yeah, it would be harder. One thing well, uh, it was a Democratic Senate. They I mean, certainly I mean, couldn't yeah. right now. Right. But I'm just saying, even though the presidential field has shifted so far left of where the party was 10 years ago, the Democrats in Congress, I think, have not shifted by as much. Yeah. Well, in the, in the House. In the Senate. I mean, in the yeah. Senate, no. Well, there are fewer of them. I mean, the, the it, it came public option came pretty close. It was really two people who were really opposed. So and but they had 60 senators then and they don't have anywhere near. They have 47 now. So. But even in the House, and we talked about this on the drug thing, I mean, you have this sort of 
whenever you have a majority, and this is going to happen for the Republicans too, you have the sort of the the true, you know, the the far left, and the Republicans have the far right. But then you have the people in the swing districts. So when you're a majority, you're going to have enough people in those swing districts, and that's I think part of why they haven't taken an impeachment vote and why they're having trouble with the drug bill is that you've got you know your your base on the one side, and you've got your people who are sort of protecting their their political future on the other side. And I think there's as much or more of that as we've seen, and that's why the Republicans couldn't get stuff done either. Right. Tammy, Just one note. Something. on Elizabeth Warren is a, a lot of people jumped a few weeks ago. She said that Medicare for All was a framework and everyone was like, whoo. So her, the campaign kind of waved us off of that, but that's out there. So I we'll heard see. her say, and I've had trouble going back and finding this because people have asked me to, that, that she would be open to doing to a more incremental way of getting to Medicare for All which I always assumed would be her pivot. Right. And the big problem that the Democrats and, you know, something they haven't really been challenged on for those who support Medicare for All is that people want relief from high health care costs now. So even, you know, four years under under Bernie Sanders, it's like, what are they what are you going to do to lower my drug costs, to lower my health care costs now? As we've said, that's very difficult. Uh, so anyway, in other news this week, um, the most action on health policy came from the courts. First, as we predicted last week, federal district court judges, plural, uh, and I think we are up to four states, temporarily stopped enforcement of the administration's so-called public charge rule, which would make it harder for legal immigrants to get green cards if they use any of a long list of public programs, including Medicaid. But we're also seeing that even with the rules not in effect, they seem to be having a chilling effect on immigrants doing things like enrolling their children in the Children's Health Insurance Program. Assuming this rule doesn't ever happen... Do we feel like that this chilling effect might be sort of quasi-permanent? I mean, that people are going to now, well, maybe, uh, you know, Trump will get reelected or maybe we'll get another Republican and we just should stay away. If we want to stay, if we're here legally and we want to stay here, we just should never use public programs. Right. I mean, we've already seen that. And we talked about this last month when the Census Bureau numbers came out that the uninsured rate for Latinos spiked by, I think, one percentage point. The uninsured rate for children went up for the first time in forever, which is really hurt which is really concerning a lot of people and a lot of advocates. So we can we don't know for sure because census doesn't ask, you know, why are you uninsured, but we are already seeing it, I believe. There's certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence of. And I think well, the census numbers aren't anecdotal. I mean, you don't no, know no, all the reasons, no, but you but, see a mm-hmm. trend. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one year, so you see you see something happened. Yes. I think also you have to see this as one of a range of policies affecting immigrants under the Trump administration that is making them more reluctant to have contact with these federal and state programs that, you know, I think people who are undocumented are particularly wary. They may not want members of their family, even who are eligible for benefits, to sign up for benefits. And I think you then have these people who are in legal process who see so much tumult and so much difficulty getting through the legal process where they don't necessarily want to identify themselves in any way that might jeopardize their chances of getting through. So I think the public charge, it definitely seems like there's some chilling effect directly related to that policy proposal, which hasn't gone into effect yet. But I think it becomes in the minds of a lot of immigrant families, it's sort of tied up with a lot of other stuff that just makes them nervous. But it is very hard to measure. I mean, I think that we do not have clear numbers on the actual effects of these policies. We just have anecdotal accounts from advocates and from individual families who have said that they've withdrawn their families 
from these programs. It just it makes me wonder, you know, we have the 20 or somewhat Democratic presidential candidates talking about stuff that would basically have to be done by Congress. And yet most of what's happening in health care these days gets done by the president. And yet nobody and the asks. courts. Yeah. And that's not going to change. Right. Everything well, the president gonna, and then gets challenged will, right, in the courts. Everything will be in the courts for the rest of our lives. That's just the way America <laughs> yes, currently which, works. Which is why we have four things. <laughs> the second one uh, is that the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, panel in Ohio ruled that Ohio cannot proceed with a law outlawing abortion because the fetus has Down syndrome. This was a law that sought to actually punish doctors, but the majority on the panel said that it interfered with current Supreme Court precedent, which of course could change soon. Uh, I'm wondering if this persistent drumbeat of abortion-related cases is doing for... Uh, you know, doing much for either side in what's fundamentally a very political <coughs> debate, or is the public just confused at this point? Because there's all these bans that are or aren't in effect, and, and all these Republicans basically keep passing these things, and the courts until now kept stopping them. Well, the courts can't, the lower courts can't reverse row. So these these uh, state restrictions, many of them which, which clearly violate row, they're not going to be, they can't be upheld by the courts. Um, it has to go to the Supreme Court. Some of the things like waiting periods and, and you know, how long the waiting period can be and things, those happen. There's certain restrictions that have been upheld and the courts can still fight about whether it's 18 hours or 36 hours and things like that. But the, the, the fundamental privacy right found in 1973 stands no matter what state legislatures do. So until the Supreme Court weighs in, which they could do under the Louisiana case pending, but it is more likely that we don't see a complete row ruling this year. It's more likely that that's still down the road and that both sides, it, it stays part of the politics and it stays a contentious, I mean, it's been a contentious point of American society since 1973 and it's not going to stop. There was this big drumbeat um, of, of women's groups, you know, wanting the moderators to ask about reproductive health in the debate. And I sort of kept saying on Twitter, it's like, they don't disagree. <laughs> the Democratic candidates they don't disagree. They may disagree about Hyde and the Hyde Amendment. They may disagree, I mean, a little but, bit about late, you know, Yeah, about tactics. But I'm saying it's, it's hard to bring up. And yet we saw several candidates, Kamala Harris particularly, you know, sort of bring it up on her own. That was right. that was sort of my question. It's like, you know, how how potent an issue is this going to be when we get to the general election? I imagine it certainly, obviously it was for the Republicans in 2016 when they, when they knew there was a Supreme Court opening right then and there. Um, because they had not filled the, the Scalia seat. And we, we don't know yet whether um, sort of younger women who have grown up in an era when abortion was legal and they heard activists saying, you know, abortion rights are threatened. But in the past, they really weren't threatened the way. Now it's a reality. It's a different court and a different president. So um, we don't know whether that's going to be an activating issue and turnout base, you know, whether it becomes less of an abstraction and more something people vote on on the Democratic side. We know that on the Republican side, it's a defining, motivating, you know, huge part of the Republican base vote on that single issue. And one thing that they did discuss on uh, Tuesday night, which was interesting, was court packing. So, you know, unfortunately, the presidential election is not going to change the well, not going to change the current makeup of the Supreme Court. And there is already, you know, which is five four conservative. Exactly. So for the first time, the court, you know, abortion rights are threatened at the Supreme Court. We don't level, know how so. all five would vote on a specific case, but it'll but be, we know what they those five right. think but about abortion in general. See, yeah going down the line, whether the Democrats support 
changing the court makeup. Actually, that was one of the more interesting sort of mm-hmm. arguments about it. Didn't you work know, very well for FDR. It did not work very well for FDR. Just for those who don't know court packing, the idea is that the Constitution says that there will be a Supreme Court, but the Constitution doesn't say how many people will be on it. So Wasn't it originally seven? They added two at some point? That I don't remember. I can't remember. But I do right. know that there's no specific number. So it's been suggested that, well, you know, you could add some more seats and make it Fifteen, right, and then then the next party comes in, they add more, and we'll have like a forty-person Supreme Court, and it'll be one hundred thirty-five. Or four hundred thirty-five. Like, yeah, everybody, everybody gets their own Supreme Court justice. Yeah, it could it could get unwieldy really fast. But you know, and there's also the discussion which uh, Buttigieg mentioned about term limits and just redefining. It'd be really easy to pass a constitutional amendment for that. (laughs) Oh yeah, it's really easy to pass all constitutional amendments. Just snap your fingers. Yes, also to pack the. Although it is a super interesting idea, but it seems like. even compared to the things that we usually talk about that are hard to pass, uh, passing constitutional amendment is extremely hard. So to now pass. they live courts. The judges live longer and keep their teeth. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they and have I, good. They probably have good dental coverage. I was just going to say that. <laughs> um, All right. uh, Also at the appeals court level, a three-judge panel here in Washington heard arguments on the Medicaid work requirements passed in Kentucky and Arkansas. Uh, And from what the judges said, it sounds like they agree with the lower court judge that helping people find jobs, in this case by taking away their health insurance if they don't, is not a key part of Medicaid's objective. Uh, How long do we think the administration is going to push this? I know it's a really high priority for them. They have have found no luck yet in the courts on the the work requirements. Oh, I I don't see that they're going to stop pushing it. It's something that, that, you know, I think Seema Verma, the CMS administrator, believes in strongly. Um, I, I think that you know, they will continue pushing and approving and, and doing it. I mean, and I can certainly see the Supreme Court eventually upholding this. The question would be, is it still President Trump or is it another administration after 2021? A Democrat wouldn't push these um, work requirements. Um, you know, what c- various kinds of compromises down the road involving Medicaid expansion, et cetera, who knows? I mean, we've seen blue governors, in the case of Virginia in particular, make that deal. Um, but no, the courts, Although we haven't seen the work requirements no, that they, they, have not, <laughs> they agreed right? to do no, in Virginia. I mean, there's, there's part of this, like several of the other court battles, are, are playing out the clock so that the longer that the advocates can fight them in court and delay them, they've only gone into effect in one state and they've been suspended in Arkansas. So the other, I think, is it nine states who have approvals? Is that the current number? Eight, nine? Um, it it has, it's a bunch. It seems to have slowed. Yeah, and, right. it does seem to have slowed. But it's right. uh, no, they've gone into effect in Indiana, and they were in effect in New Hampshire, New Hampshire. and and then New Hampshire suspended suspended it. right. So because they saw that people were going to be losing coverage, and you know whether they did that because they were concerned about the court case, which is also against New Hampshire, or whether they were truly concerned that people were going to be losing coverage remains to be but seen. But I think if it's still a live issue under the Trump presidency, I can see this going to the Supreme Court as well. It's something else to watch. Um, all right, finally on the on the court scene this week, a federal ju- federal district judge Reed O'Connor in Texas, yes, that same judge who ruled the entire ACA unconstitutional last year, has now ruled that the anti-discrimination rules put out by the Obama administration implementing the Affordable Care Act's provisions are also unconstitutional because they violate another law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And unlike what Judge O'Connor did in the Affordable Care Act case, where he did not issue an injunction, which is why we are still looking at the Affordable Care Act, waiting for the appeals court to rule. um, In this case, Judge O'Connor did uh, uh, issue an injunction. So what might this mean for religious entities going forward? That these rules, eliminating these rules, effectively say they can kind of do what they want. 
right? So I think this ruling is sort of important, but not as important as it seems at first. So uh, step one, Judge O'Connor two years ago issued a preliminary injunction, also a nationwide injunction, saying that these rules were not allowed while the case was being considered. So this ruling is final, but that old ruling was there before. But in the meantime, the Trump administration has basically Uh, tried to overhaul these rules entirely. And they used the O'Connor decision as part of their justification justification for doing that, where they said, you know, we have a federal court that has said that these Obama era rules are invalid, so we got to fix them. Uh, Other courts that have considered uh, the same or identical issues have found differently. So as in many things, Judge O'Connor is a bit of an outlier, uh, tends to be very sympathetic to this administration's policies. But, you know, I think that the, the real way that this particular issue is going to be resolved is probably not in the court's at the moment, it's in the regulatory process. So we're going to be fighting over the Trump rules, which really uh, remove a lot of these civil rights protections for patients who are transgender, who are gay. Um, or who are seeking reproductive health care, including birth control. Health care. So there will be court cases about that rule. There that, are already court cases yes. about that rule. <laughs> that's, I think that's sort of the next phase for this. This is like a little bit of like the tail end of the litigation about a set of rules that are no longer really in effect. I think we will leave it there. That is the news for this week. It is now time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Joanne, why don't you start this week? There's a uh, piece in the LA Times by Melody Peterson about the amount of access that some companies that do uh, tissue and organ collection legally, some of it for most of it for medical purposes, some I learned in this article from cosmetic, but they just have, they've changed the law and they have tremendous access to public, to the morgues and they get at these bodies really fast. And in some cases, there are a lot of questions about whether they're interfering with investigations into the cause of death, whether foul play was suspected or or whether these, you know, horrible cases when a 17-year-old drops dead in the middle of a football game, you know, what went wrong. It's, a, you know, sort of good for the week before Halloween or 10 days before Halloween. It's a little gruesome. But <laughs> just, interesting. Just a tad. <laughs> Tammy. Well, I also have a gruesome story to to highlight. and But the main reason I picked it was because it was why one of my former students, Caroline Chen, who's now at ProPublica, who was one of my best students. So big shout-out to Caroline. Uh, and, and a big shout-out to teacher. Oh, well. <laughs> I would love to claim credit, but I don't think I can. Uh, So this is a story that ran in ProPublica about how Newark Beth Israel Hospital has a major heart transplant program there. And as I learned in the story, the feds monitor to see how many people die within a year of a heart transplant. So Caroline's story looks at how the hospital, without the family's consent, kept uh, a 61-year-old alive for a year in a vegetative state just to, you know, keep its numbers up. And she obtained and actually posted audio recordings of meetings of the transplant team talking about this. Uh, And, you know, their concern was is that if uh, Daryl Young died within a year before year was up, that the program's standing and its very survival was in jeopardy. And guess what? Because of her story, it actually now is the federal, the CMS and, you know, the federal uh, government's investigating this, and the director of the program, Dr. Mark Zucker, who had been the head of the program for 30 years, is now on administrative leave. Oops. Margo. 
I wanted to recommend a new podcast about health policy called Tradeoffs. Uh, it's brought to us by Dan Gorenstein, who's a former health reporter for Marketplace and also was a former colleague with me in New Hampshire when he was at New Hampshire Public Radio and I was at the Concord Monitor. Um, and his pilot episode launched this week. You can get it at tradeoffs.org. And it's all about the Urban Institute's model that they use to estimate the cost of health policy changes that we were just talking about the Urban Institute's estimates about what's going to happen with Medicare for All. He did this great piece about how they do it, the history of it, the personalities, the tough choices they have to make, and the importance of having these kinds of tools that allow us to really better understand whether or not politicians are making promises that they can keep. And uh, it's just sort of uh, beautifully done and nerdy and human and delightful. And I'm really excited to see what the rest of the podcast looks like. Yeah, it is definitely super nerdy. And of course, I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) My extra credit this week is from my KHN colleagues, Rachel Bluth and Lauren Weber. It's called We Vape, We Vote, How Vaping Crackdowns Are Politicizing Vapors. And it is about a growing voting block of vapors. There are more than 10 million of them, as well as vape store owners who could easily tip an election in some swing states, which is exactly what they are working to organize to do. They are not happy at the moment with Democrats or Republicans who are cracking down on vapings. And it's putting politicians, including President Trump, who's uh, come out against at least flavored vaping, uh, in a very uncomfortable place. So it'll be interesting to sort of watch how, you know, we talk about liberals and conservatives. Well, now we have liberals and conservatives and vapors. Um, Watch that space. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Luby, L U H B Y. At Joanne Kennan. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.